Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 767th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today's podcast is with Bill McDormand, a seed saver for the past 50 plus years. We get together once a month, chat about all things seeds. Enjoy. Welcome, welcome everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from Urban Farm U. And I hope you're well tonight. I'm here with Bill McDormand. Hello, Bill. Hello, Greg. How are you? Great. Always a pleasure to hang out with you. I always love doing it. So August it is. And we are talking about bugs, disease, weather, and animals. So the questions are, is it possible to benefit from a complete destruction of your favorite crop? By your least favorite insect? How do we learn to live with the critters that occupy our lands and we're probably here first? What about rapidly accelerating weather patterns like the hottest July ever? What do we do with that all? So I'm just going to toss it over to you and let you run with it, Bill. It seems like that's what we're going to be living with for the next few years. I, I just saw some new research that showed that if we get to net zero, in emissions, yep. which we're a long ways from right now. But if we get to net zero, it'll take three to five years for temperatures to start coming back down. Wow. That's doable. And that's yeah. lighting up the world's young people to get involved. And that's not what this show is about. It's about how are we going to make it through that period where we get have all these surprises. So yeah. the other thing that's happening is that it's not just we're getting hotter and drier periods that are literally cooking crops. But on the other hand, we're getting rain bombs. We're getting, when it does rain, it floods. And we're seeing this all, Vermont had that, right? It's not just a 500 year flood. Engineers were scratching and going, this is off the chart. And that's the kind of stuff. So what crops are going to make it through those sorts of surprises as well? And then the offshoot of that, and I remember a scientist She was in charge of barley and wheat trials for the Idaho Wheat Commission in Idaho. And she was saying that the diseases, especially in barley, were off the chart, the vector for the new and the amount of diseases of barley. And I said, so why? And she said, it's because of all this unknown weather. We're getting hot periods when we didn't used to have hot and we're getting rain when we didn't have. This is all a way of saying as an introduction to saying, Wow. Hang on to your hats. And let's talk about a mental approach to what's happening. Because if you just are keep your normal gardening, a state of mind, and we go out and we plan and we have expectations and they get dashed when they get dashed year after year, that's depressing. And it doesn't help us. We need food. We need local food. We talk about that a lot here. And in order to have really local food, we have to have local seeds, those that are adapted. And I still think inside of that is the answer. And to summarize, and I'll bring this up at the end of the show, but this is what the whole thing I want to talk about tonight fits into this encapsulized concept. And that is get all the diversity you can into your yard into your neighborhood, into your community. That's uh, more different kinds of varieties 
of the favorite crops that you want to grow and more different kinds of crops off the scale. We found Thonia I did a couple of years ago, which is a millet that grows in West Africa that doesn't take any water. After, if there's enough moisture in, yeah, during their rainy season to plant it toward the end, it can, it can grow up, flower, and produce seeds that are edible. They're like a millet, but they're only, the seeds are only about half size, but it's the most drought tolerant millet there is. And so that's an example. That's what I'm talking about. New crops, things that may make it where our normal sort of New England garden varieties may not. And so got to start thinking outside the box. Well, part of how I did that at the urban farm in Phoenix is I planted nothing but open pollinated seeds for over 20 years, probably closer to 30 years. And what would happen is they would grow, go to seed, the seeds would spread and come back the next year. And really what happened for me was that all I would do was just go grocery shopping in the yard. What a concept. Somewhere, some economist somewhere hates that idea, (laughs) right? (laughs) Sales are down. How much grocery shopping can we do in our yards? And how much trading then? If everybody grew something different and you could trade, and that's what little markets and farm stands are about. And we're seeing those come back in spades. So that's good. So the other thing, so get as much diversity as you can. And the other thing that I want to is change your mindset completely so that when you have a disaster and Lord knows we're going to already we're having disasters, right? With crops yeah. burning up or things not working, invite it in, say, yes, disaster, disaster. And, and let me explain, disasters are your best thing that can happen to us right now. We still have grocery stores. We still have food. We still yeah. have a global supply chain, right? Things are okay. And that gives us the freedom that we're not doing this for survival. We're not out there sitting all night with a shotgun, keeping vermin out of our garden, because if we don't, we'll starve. And that happened to my friends in Siberia when the Soviet Union collapsed. For a while, the trains and the trucks weren't going to Siberia in the Soviet food distribution model, and their food system dried up. And they had to learn how to grow their own food again. And fortunately, they already were growing about 75% of it. Everybody had a dacha garden. Yeah. But it got really serious. And that's a different thing. So that's while we while we can have disasters, let's learn from them. And let's save seeds from the things that work in those disasters. And in the end, that will strengthen our whole system. Yeah. That's one of the things that I saw when I was in Croatia in 2014. Right. That right. yard after yard after yard after yard, the front yards for entire right. neighborhoods were full of groceries. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we call them. <laughs> to them, it's normal. Yeah. So when you, if you were a Soviet citizen, you, everybody had the right to a garden plot. And you could build a little cabin on it for the summers and get out of the city or whatever. They're dachas. And every that was your right. And so what you do is join together with a club or the people you work with or whatever. And they would literally carve out of the wilderness to places for 200 of these little gardens. Wow. And everybody would do their gardens and live out there. And they, they were just full of food. And that's what really saved them when their food system went down. They've got stuff back. And it's all our companies are over there now or were and the derivatives of them. But I gave them a real backbone in case 
there are real disasters. So just let me tell you one story. And this is from my good friend to illustrate this. So my good friend, John Navazio, who is a plant breeder and works for Johnny Selected Seeds. And he's also one of the co-founders of the Organic Seed Alliance. He spent most of his career out on the West Coast. He was an organic mm -hmm. farmer and turned into seed saver, went back to school, got his PhD in genetics and plant breeding. So that's wow. his background. So he was in Washington and heard about a disaster. All right. And what was it? It was, it's called black stem rot. And it's a fungus that gets into cabbage family plants, get into cabbage, especially broccoli. Mm -hmm. And so if you were to cut a broccoli that had this, the stalk and look at it, the whole inside would be black. It gets up into the vascular bundle. Wow. And it starts growing and eating the plant from the inside out. So you don't get broccoli if it gets into your crop. And it's hard to get rid of. Once it's in the soil and in the area, it's really difficult. And so John was called in. John, what do we do? We're losing all these broccoli farmers. This whole valley is about to be affected. And there's some really bad spots. And he goes, great. Take me to the worst. They ask around. They found an acre of land that was totally devastating. Uh -huh. And nobody was going to grow broccoli there again. They'd given up. And he said, okay, this is the acre. Can we get this acre? And can I do an experiment on this? And they go, yeah. But why would you want to do that? It's going to be a disaster. We already know that. Teach us something. And he said, no, this is what I want. And so what he did was source as many different kinds of broccoli from around the world that he could. Unbelievable diversity. He found all the hybrids, all the known disease resistant, but all the open pollens, everything, and planted them, had them started as starts, and that next year planted them into this acre field. And one of the people that was there said, and I'm paraphrasing, John, I hope I'm not butchering your story too much if you ever hear this someday, but somebody said, we know what's going to happen. It's going to, there's not, nothing's going to grow. And, it, and at the end of the growing season, they brought John back and they said, that's what happened. Here it is. And John goes, great. This is exactly what I wanted to happen. And he starts walking carefully around the edges and then worked his way through them. And there were weeds coming up by then. The broccoli was gone and walking. And he found four broccoli plants that made it. Wow. And when they cut them open, no sign of black rock. He goes, bingo. This is what we're looking for. And they started a breeding project around a broccoli using those four plants and overcame the problem in that yep. area. And that's just plant breeding 101 used to be way back in the day. Yeah. And this knowledge was around with farmers and gardeners and disaster. If somebody says it's a disaster going to be, that's when you should go, Oh, can I go over and see it? Look at the edges, look around. And I think that's the skill that I personally have to develop more after 40 years of gardening. And having all sorts of successes and disasters or whatever, you know what it's like. Oh, yeah. The one thing I wish I could do more is what Joseph Lofthaus, our friend who's the author of Land Race Gardening, and that is look more carefully. I walked into a field with him a couple of summers ago, and I was blown away by how much more he saw than I did of, of little things that had come up that were stunted or differences in crops. He just learned to train your eye to observe. And that skill, invite in disaster and learn to look really carefully. That's, it summarizes what we're going to have to do. We can't control the weather now. 
we can get into the streets. Let's keep the fossil fuel companies from blowing through the climate talks that we're having now globally. They've pretty much taken them over so they don't have to slow down on oil and gas. We got to stop that. There's a great video Al Gore just did. It's a TED Talk. Oh, so if wow. You want the, if you want all the latest information about climate change globally and what's happening and where we need to focus our energy, then watch. It's a YouTube that will come up. Just go Al Gore TED Talk. TED Talk. And it's about the fossil fuel industry, basically. And he's really good. It blew me away. We can work on that level and try to bring our emissions down to net zero so we can start to bring this weirdness and wildness that's going to affect the world's crops before it's done. But in the meantime, let's rock and roll and have fun. Let's do yeah. what we should be doing anyway. I've got more stories. I seem to remember one about squash. What's the one about bitter squash? There's, yeah, that's, that's a, a little bit different, but it ties into this talk in that there's a resistance built into that whole family, the cucubirts, that is really bitter. There's an enzyme that the family can produce <clears throat> that's really, really bitter. And that is uh, the family uh, resistance to insects and animals from eating the squash. That's why it was in there. And so if uh, all our modern squash and cucumbers come from wild plants, those wild plants, you couldn't eat the fruits. Way too bitter. Off the yeah. scale, bitter, make you sick for a week bitter. And little by little over the last six or eight or 9,000 years, we've learned to breed that out by selecting ones that weren't as bitter. But every once in a while, the bitter gene shows up. It'll never be gone, probably. This is that part of nature that we always talk about. Never say never. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We got the bitter gene out of our squash. No. It, there's, there are combinations. They're one in a million. But every once in a while, people, and you hear stories all over the country, people will bite into a zucchini and it'll be so bitter that they have to throw it away. My story is that a woman accused, you know, she called me up and said, I got your your black zucchini seed from your seed company, planted it, and it ruined my dinner. That's what she said. And I said, excuse me, I've, I'm not usually in the business to ruin people's dinners. What happened? Right. And she said, we beautiful zucchinis. And we were having people over for dinner. We had a barbecue. I couldn't wait. And we steamed up a bunch of the zucchinis, cut them in slices, put them on the plate. We had mashed potatoes. We had ribs. It was all on the plate. And the juice from the zucchinis, as it does when they're perfectly steamed, they're succulent, rolled into the potatoes and the ribs, right? It Ooh. just dripped into the side. Somebody took a bite and it was so bitter. It ruined, nobody could eat. The whole dinner was ruined. Aww. And so she goes, what's up? And that sent me on an adventure to talk to the family that does the most squash breeding or has for the last 80 to 100 years in the United States. And they're the one that told me about the bitter gene. In fact, when I called them up, it was Holler and Company. And I got somebody on the phone and I told them the story. I said, look, I bought, I, I traced the lot. I know I bought black zucchini seed. I was buying it in bulk from the growers yep. in Rocky Ford, Colorado. What's up? And I'll still remember to this day, it was like they took the phone away from their mouth and yelled, we got the bitter gene. <laughs> and you could hear all this activity and people coming out of their offices. Everybody wanted to know about it. And so what I learned later was that in their front offices, 
their family and their cousins and the people that work at this company represented 700 years of experience in growing and breeding squash. Wow. They're a big company now. And he said, there's not a month that goes by without some surprise, like your phone call where something happens. And I guess I'm telling this whole story because we think that everything's uniform. It's a, you buy it, it's going to be the same every time. There's a lot of diversity in everything that we've got. And so I'll get back to what I said at the top of the show. Number one, get as much diversity into your yard, into your neighborhood, and into your community as you can, while you can, because that will give you the best chance to find something that'll make it like John Navazio did, you know, when he overcame a relatively common problem, actually, in wet years. So, Cool. Nathan says, if we do our best to supply plants with adequate water during a drought, what other stress factors should we be on the lookout for to select plants that seem to have unique adaptation to tolerate them? Looking at high sunlight, pH, salts, others? You can get very scientific about it, and you could, yeah, and they do. If you were to go to Cicada Seed in California, in the Bay Area of California, just outside of there, they have 20 PhDs doing this with all the crops, trying to figure out and select and make things better and more uniform or whatever. And bless you if you've got the mind and the education and the time to study and do that. Because on large scale agriculture, that's absolutely necessary. For us at home, that's what I learned from Joseph Lofthouse again. I just tossed all that stuff out. All you need to do is find the crops you love that you want to grow first or the ones that are going to survive like this phonio if your climate's really changing like it is in Tucson, Arizona, which in yep. 20 years is going to be the Sahara Desert, same climate. So maybe we should grow Sahara Desert crops and get ahead of the score because things are changing. But all you need to do is save seeds from the ones that work, that have characteristics that you like. And so I'll say something else that John Navazio taught me because he's famous for this. He's going, if you're really looking to select for drought tolerance, go hard on them. Don't water them. Almost yeah. kill them. Kill 90% of it. He's, he claimed, last time I talked to John, he's in John, at Johnny Selected Seeds, way up north in Maine, and it's been real cold. Yeah. And he he told me collectively for the crops that he's working with, spinach and carrots, he's got several, he's moved them 10 degrees in their cold ap- adaptation since he's been there. Wow. And how did he how did he do it? He said 80. My he said, my interns think I'm crazy, but I will plant and 80% of everything will die. That's what he means by going hard on it. Yeah. Turn your water back till 80% of them die. If that's what you're really after, breeding for drought tolerance, and then you'll know which ones have the stuff and are epigenetically rolling up their DNA to save themselves. And those characteristics can be passed on in one year to your crop. It's really an exciting. We can all be experimenters this way. You use the word epigenetics, and I was always confused until I truly understood what it meant. Can you say what that means just so that people well, uh, get a sense? Sim- simple. Epi means beyond genetics. 
And there's an immediate, oh, this must be woo or foo-foo science. What is this? This have to do with moon planting? <laughs> What's going on here? Or praying or dancing or singing? No. Epigenetics was discovered in the 50s, actually, by Barbara McClintock, and she won the Nobel Prize in the 50s. And she's often, and her discovery is often pointed out as one of the stories now, as we realize how much women did, and we just pushed them aside. It must not be real. It must not be important. It doesn't fit into our industry. We're all off. We're here doing this stuff, and we know what we're doing. Slowly but surely, over the last 80 years, it's been discovered. It's being taught in universities. I met Dr. Bradley Thompson, who just graduated with a degree in plant genetics and plant breeding, and he quit any job that opportunities he had to go work for the big companies which are all about genetic engineering or industrial ag. And he's in New Mexico. Why? Because of epigenetics and what he learned. So let me explain it. It's basically the idea that an organism, and we're learning this about humans too, that when, especially around stressors. So if you're, if a plant is hugely stressed, whether that's fire and heat or drought tolerance, especially as the ones I deal with in Arizona, yep. it changes. That plant just doesn't go, oh, I'm not prepared for this. I'm going to die. It's an intelligent organism and it starts to change. And what we've learned through epigenetics is that it can express or keep from expressing enzymes in the plant by rolling up its DNA to keep certain genes from expressing. Or if it needs to express them, it can roll that DNA back out. This is its magical way of adapting to things in real time. And the secret then for epigenetics and why Bradley's in New Mexico, I'm speaking for you, Bradley. Please forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth. <laughs> but that characteristic of the rolled up DNA or the unrolled, because a plant went through, say, 110 degree heat in a summer in Phoenix and survived, that characteristic is immediately passed on to its offspring. There doesn't have to be any sexual transfer of genetic materials. It's beyond that. That's where you get epigenetics. It's not like you have to be a breeder. You just have to save seeds from the stuff that works and plant it again. And I think for in my own life, this starts to explain something that I've always been in awe of in my own garden. And that is volunteers. Yeah. It just seems like there's always a volunteer that grows up somewhere where it shouldn't. How the seed got there, I have no idea. But it was from a plant that made it through the year before, probably, or maybe a few years before in the case of your basil, right? Yep. They're at the urban farm. We tell that story sometimes. Now we know what that what's happening is that the stressors are changing it every year. It's dropping its seed. It's growing up. They're changing it again. It's dropping its seed. It's growing up. And after a while, it just works there better. This is the way it adapts. And this is the characteristic that we need to take advantage of as we go forward. It's the only tool we have, actually. Yeah. And the curious thing about it is that it happens now. This isn't a yes. thing that takes, takes years or decades. It's real time. Right. And so you realize what this does, Greg? This nullifies... It actually makes a laughing matter out of the people who say, we need genetic engineering. 
Mm-hmm. We need huge industrial agriculture. All you're going to do at this point with the changes we face with large industrial farms is provide big food to one thing or crash the whole crop and cause people to starve because it either floods or gets too hot. Those things are over. We need everybody everywhere on small scales learning how to readapt and grow local food that actually works with the climate as it evolves in their own areas. That's a way more cost-effective path forward for all humans. And it's just gonna take a while and it's inevitable. Yeah. Again, after seeing Al Gore again the other day, I don't talk like this very often. I'm almost 70 years old. I can talk the way I want now and it's inevitable. You and I know, we've been doing this for how many years? Same vision. Yeah. for me. Around the same ideas. We need a food system. Yeah. And it's getting closer and closer. Bless us that I hope it, I can always go down and get my Haagen-Dazs at the local Cornville Merck. I love going to the store. But the day that I can't, I want our whole community to be okay. And that's the other, that's the other piece that, and I think this is where you were going next. It's a few people on our, in our neighborhoods. That doesn't fix the problem. We need to get everybody doing it. Like what's happening in Croatia. Yeah, exactly. That's a cultural, and I think the seeds to that cultural change are here. Yeah. And I think there's a yearning for authenticity and to for accomplishment, especially in young people. They want to know they're connected to somebody and know who they are. Yeah. And wow, it's all, it was, it's like the ruby slippers. All you have right. to do is tap them together. You're already in your own damned yard. Just plant something. Actually, you don't even have to do that. In most yards, just go out and look. It's like your lettuce seed would blow into the neighbor's yards or somebody in years past that owned your house or your rental had planted something. There's probably something already there. Yeah. And there could be a treasure. Take a deep breath. Just go out, walk around. Everything's going to be okay. We're going to make it. We're the seed people. We got a lot to teach. It's not enough just to save your own seeds now. And you got to share them your seed exchange, your local library, make sure everybody starts to get it. And then I think now we have another responsibility. We need to be seed teachers. Yes. We need to teach people how to do and light them up again and tell them how important it is and reward them. Or as I did with this friend of mine in Idaho, who's been a farmer for about 30 years, Nate. And he was was growing corn seed that was non-GMO. And there's was at the time there was only one corn seed company in the con- country that sold at scale, Blue Hybrids, Blue River Hybrids, it's called. Mm-hmm. And so Nate finally found a corn. Search through the ones they have, and so Nate's the only farmer. He's an organic farmer. He's not growing GMO corn in in a section of southern Idaho, unheard of. And so he goes, "This is great. The corn selling out. Everybody likes the idea." And so he go that fall. He gets calls him up and says, "Okay." I know what corn I want. I want to order. I got to order about 500 pounds to plant or whatever. I'm going big on this stuff this year. And they go, sorry, Nate, no seed. We're all sold out. There is none. And he's going, oh my God, what am I going to do? You know, it's a hybrid sweet corn. Yep. And I don't know what to do. And I said, do you have any left? He goes, oh yeah, we didn't sell it all fresh. And so he said, I've got 500 pounds of it, but it's a hybrid bill. I was just, we were just going to grind it into cornmeal or eat it or whatever. And I said, oh my gosh, plant it. 
He goes, but I don't, but you know, all the questions, you can't save seeds from hybrids, right? Yep. I said, Nate, eight to 16% of that stuff's going to be just like your blue river. Get your son to walk the rows and save the ones from the ones that work really well for you. In three generations, you'll have a working crop. You won't even know. It takes eight generations to purify it. If you want to start Nate's seed company and sell it to other people, you're going to have to do this for longer. But in three years, you're just selling corn. You'll have good enough corn to sell. That's what I've been told from experience, especially around corn. So he goes, what? He's trying to, and then the zinger, and this is what I wanted to say. I said, Nate, then you can name it after your son or your granddaughter or your, or yourself. This is Nate's corn, right? It's yours. You can dehybridize. There's no patent on it. There's, this is legal. And they don't have the seed. And it'll be adapted every year now, three to five years to Glensbury, yep. I know. And he goes, oh, Bill. You're appealing to my vanity now. (laughs) (laughs) And I think in the end, that's why people will switch. Everybody is a little bit vain. They want to show their neighbors they've got the stuff. They've got the best thing, whether it's named after them or not. I love that. So there's a couple of questions and statements here. Nathan was the one that asked about what other stress factors we should look for. He followed that up with very good points. Plant variety, don't coddle them. What's doing well is will be obvious. Exactly. Yeah. And don't underestimate your ability, Nate, to develop that skill to see what's obvious. I walked into a field with a scientist who saw twice as much as I did. And I've been gardening for 40 years. My friend, Kelly Weston, who was on the board of directors of the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance that we started, is it's legendary. Now, he has a black silk Japanese robe. And if I remember, it's got a dragon or something. It's very sacred, old Japanese. Uh-huh. It's, silk, it's like silk. Uh-huh. And he puts that on when he goes out into his garden because it helps him change his uh... attitude. And he becomes like a monk. And he walks and every day, if you have to water it by hand, lots of gardeners have learned that take out the irrigation and be out there every day watering, you'll just start to see things. And so that's when it's obvious. I just want to reinforce that there's lots of different levels of obvious. And the more you learn to look and absorb from the plants, they'll teach you what to do. It's on a mind-blowing scale. Even Dr. Carol Depe, who taught at Harvard, said that to me. She said, Bill, when I stopped trying to breed plants and started listening more to what was actually going on in my garden, way better. I just got <laughs> way more and way better stuff. Wow. Nathan also says incredible plants are indeed intelligent, adaptive beings. Yeah. Cool. Deborah says at the health food store, they sell colorful organic popcorn. Can she plant it? Yeah, do. Always plant. Now, may or may not work. Sometimes seeds need to be kept cool, dark, and dry. Yeah. And popcorn doesn't necessarily. Good popcorn does. But uh, try it. It may be really fun, really good. But here's a hint. What would happen if you loved popcorn so much and you lived in the middle of a million acres of corn and you started growing popcorn and every year you'd bring in your corn 
and you would lay it all out and then you would start popping it and you learn to recognize what the kernels look like and what size they are and how mature they are, what color, all the characteristics. You learned which ones pop best. 100% of the time, make the best popcorn. Trial and error, decades of just eating and getting involved in popcorn. And then once you found it, what would happen then if you selected out of all your corn, the best ones, and then replanted it? And then next year, looked again and selected out and replanted and went through selection for another 40 years, okay? And then you go, okay, I'm going to sell. This is good. It's 100% popped. It's, I put the work in. I'm going to sell it now. That's Orville Redenbacher. Uh, that's I knew the that's Orville, this was going. That's the Orville Redenbacher story. So if you're doing wow. colorful popcorn, think about this, that you've got a lot of work to do. Your job is to get us great popcorn for wherever you live because yeah. people are going to want it. They're going to need it. This is the fun we get to have. Yeah. Laura says, can you expand on your statement that seeds need to be kept cool, dark, and dry? Is that the case for all types of seeds? And how cool is cool? <laughs> so we actually cover this in depth if you want an in-depth lessons on this in our seed school online you can go to seedschoolonline.com and we have a seed school that you can get a good deep lesson on that but give us a the short answer bill the only real science that i could find that's been done about around this was done by dr bruce bugby at utah state university who got a contract from NASA mm. to study storage of seeds on a trip to Mars. Okay. And I'll just cut to the chase. What he discovered is that if you keep seeds below 80 degrees Fahrenheit, some will die every year, but it'll be really slow. You'll have seeds around in 10 years or 20 years, usually with most crops. I've got mm. some 40 year old onion seed that's at about 50% germination, but the stuff that's left still works. It's the idea. So keep them below 80. I think that for me, storing seeds in clay, which helps absorb moisture out away from the seeds, is dry enough. You know, some people put them in paper polyfoil packets and put them in freezers at the National Seed Storage Laboratory. They store them at 400 degrees below zero in liquid nitrogen. When I was there, I said, so how long will they last? And yeah. they said, we don't know. We've only been doing this for 20 years. <laughs> and I go, I've got some corn seed that was in a clay pot in the Southwest that was 600 years old that germinated. Yeah. So we know clay works. So anyway, cool, dark, and dry. Just a mantra. Picture yourself living wherever you do without refrigeration, largely without housing, more like on an indigenous scale. And how would you keep seeds cool, dark, and dry? That's because agriculture evolved with those people. Yeah. And the seeds were stored in the way that they had and then passed them on to us. So they're used to it, I think. Deborah says, I live in a hot, humid South Florida. How do I store best? Get those little silicon packets that come in everything that you've ever purchased from Amazon Prime. Because they'll help absorb moisture. If you're going to package seeds up for longer term storage, wait for a dry day. Check the humidity 
and package things up on the lowest humidity days. Don't do it on the worst ones. That You can really help to do things that way. Rice, especially white rice, absorbs a lot of moisture. I know oh, people yeah. that'll put that in the bottoms of buckets or things. Clay oh, works the same yeah. way. So those are just some ideas about how to do it. And generally, there isn't a huge seed industry in Florida for that reason. That Seeds reason. just don't store as long. Yeah. So you're going to have to work on that. Some crops store better than others. Maybe those are the ones that you're going to have to think about only storing and then make sure you grow out every year the other stuff. Yeah. I just, Peggy dropped the seedsave.org. Seedsave.org is Bill and Bell's website. Right. Peggy just dropped the seed school description into the chat. And that, that goes up to Urban Farm Use course. All right. That really, that course is yeah. priceless. I can't do that course anymore. Yeah, that's what you said. I was rolling with so many things and it was all available to my mind. And I had incredible, we were teaching five seed schools a year and it was all just, it was just one of those, it would be like, I feel like a musician looking back over my career and say that concert that night, for <laughs> some reason, everybody lit up and everything worked. And that's what that seed school is about. And so if you want a really priceless, precious thing, that's it. It's all in there. Yeah. All right. One more question, then we're done. The summer, the sudden pest explosions from home gardens in Phoenix seem to me to be squash bugs, mealy bugs, and various aphids. Response to these if all of your cucumbers are covered? How do you respond? If I, we used to get up in the morning. I went down to the farm at Native Seed Search when cucumber bugs showed up. And we just picked them. Yeah. That's what Heidi those does for of, the caterpillars. Those sorts of blooms don't last very long. You could do an experiment. Again, realize there's a difference here. If you want to lose 80 to 90 to 100% of your cucumbers, just plant a bunch of them and see which ones make it, which yeah. ones are naturally resistant. But if you're expecting some sort of food, then covering them is perfectly appropriate. With tool. And you cover yeah. them with tool, T-U-L-L-E. It's the fabric right. they sell in fabric stores. Yeah, it's up to you to paint your own picture around those sorts of things. There are varieties that are more resistant than others. And again, in my experience with bugs, and I'm probably the least experienced person, you know, I grew up in Idaho at 6,000 feet. We just didn't have pest problems very often. Yeah. And the ones we've had here, what I've learned is that they're short-lived. I'm, and oh, more yes. often than not, I'll have enough different things planted or did when I was gardening heavily that I would just let that crop go. And several times I was surprised by the end of the year, after things had changed, and maybe in Phoenix when it gets cooler and the days start going out or whatever, wow, the plants came back and then I got my crop. Yeah. yeah. All right. Cool. A couple more real quick things here. Stephanie says she hand waters from a rain barrel. She noticed that her plants really perk up after a rain, but not after her watering. And she's wondering if the roof shingles or solar panels could be interfering. Not likely. Yeah. I yeah. There's a magic in the rain. Yeah, there is. There's there's more. And by magic, discovered and documented, scientifically verifiable things, probably. Yeah. That are in the rain, and that's just an observation of mine. 
one of my one of my non-gardening friends said to me one day the guy I went to high school with he said greg rainwater when the storms happen it activates nitrogen when lightning right. happens it activates right. nitrogen in the water and so right. it's giving a low dose of nitrogen yes that's the only way to explain some of the and now they're measuring that which nitrogen's created underground with the microorganisms when it's inoculated right or and all the legume crops do this and corn by the way yeah. we just discovered and then some of it comes from the rain so there you go Lori from portland says the bitter squash enzyme so shall we taste the tiny bit of each and every pepo and it's c pepo only is that correct no it goes it's wider than that although you're most likely it's still in Pepo. In other words, the stories that you hear nationally, in fact, there was a big controversy on one of the social media things I got pulled into. I generally try not to do that, but it was that it's dangerous to save your own seeds. Dangerous. Oh, because you may have a variety that'll create one of these bitter squashes that could kill, if not make people really sick. And so we've got to just buy our seed off the shelf and buy hybrid seed. And that was the story. And so, yeah, those that stories is not are the case. That is absolutely yeah, not the case. The very few stories that caused those sorts of rumors to start are around the pebbles. Usually if yeah. you just search them back. And again, I can't remember the, the odds, but these guys were keeping track over the Holler family over all of their they sell millions of pounds of squash seed every year all over uh -huh. the world and it doesn't happen very often i can just yeah. tell you that yeah and if you uh, find one whenever you eat anything you should probably take a little bite first just don't eat it there's no danger if you don't eat a huge amount of it. it so just it's bitters are really great that way there are a lot of plants in your environment around you that would hurt you if you ate enough of them, even kill you. But you would never do that because they're so bitter, you would never yeah. eat them. Yeah. So that's one of them. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Uh, yeah, it's always a pleasure fun. hanging out with you and chatting about this. Yeah. We we'll look forward. So in a month, this will be released as a podcast. Yep. That's what we do. The Friday before the next one. The next seed chat, this gets released as a podcast. Donna says, great webinar. Thanks, Bill and Greg. Really enjoyed it. All right, guys. So diversity yep. and disaster. Those are your lessons for the night. Thanks, everybody. Nice. Goodbye. Thanks, Bill. Talk to you later, bud. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams.